0: today on Ag News Daily.
1: U.S. agriculture is heavily dependent and heavily benefiting from participation in the national markets and, and these increasing transportation costs, the, the prolonged transit times that exist and the potential market losses that come with those are really big concerns that we need to think about how to address.
0: Here we are, February 9th, 2024, Friday edition of the Ag News Daily podcast. We're going to bring you just a couple of headlines before... A really fun conversation, Delaney, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Tanner. Uh, We don't have a lot of news today, so I was curious to know who you're going to be cheering for in the Super Bowl this weekend.
0: I have uh, a Ray Gun t-shirt that I actually bought for myself that says Niners Light. Just an Iowa guy cheering for two Iowa kids is what the t-shirt says. So I will be rooting for the 49ers. Thanks to Brock Purdy and George Kittle.
2: That makes sense. How about you? Yeah, I think it's a tough one for us. I'm a Chiefs fan, but I also really like the 49ers because of their connection to Iowa. So uh, not to cop out and just say, I hope the best team wins, but that's kind of where I'm at with it. I feel like either team winning is going to be a good move for the Midwest.
0: Yeah. In the Midwest in general, I think there's a lot of households that are not going to be super disappointed with the outcome of the game, no matter what it is. I would say the only way I would be disappointed is if it is not close. So I'd like Mm -hmm. to see it be within one or two scores.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. And uh, I just can't imagine going to the Super Bowl, seeing tickets pop up, you know, $6,000, $8,000. It's not for people like you and me to attend, I don't think, Tanner.
0: It's a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It's funny, I was listening to another podcast yesterday about the history of the Concorde jet, the jet that was supersonic. It could make a travel over the ocean in four hours, and uh, that was discontinued. But the equivalent of those ticket prices to today's inflated value were like $15,000 a ticket. But it was meant for, you know, high level CEOs and executives and those of the rich and the famous to use or somebody going on a once in a lifetime trip that they really wanted to have the experience. So Super Bowl, I'd put in that same category. It's not something you go and do every single year.
2: No, definitely not. Definitely not, Tanner. But I suppose we better quit chit-chatting and get to some news for today. I suppose you have some weather headlines to start us out.
0: Sure, not a ton of new headlines. Snowfall is still expected in parts of South Dakota and Minnesota through midday today. This could create some slick roads according to the National Weather Service. The light snow that was uh, in this area is now mixing with the warmer ground temperatures, which is what makes those roadways a little bit slick. We still have strong winds expected for most of the rest of the Midwest, especially in Northern Wisconsin. The Southern Plains will have a winter storm watch of their own. They do have a potential for up to eight inches of snow, Delaney, in the Texas Panhandle. So that snow could continue all the way through the day on Saturday into Sunday for the Texas and Oklahoma Panhandles. So uh, quite an interesting array of weather across uh, pretty much the entire nation as uh, we rope all of those headlines together, Delaney.
2: Well, Tanner, we're going to get into the wise report and a breakdown of that here coming up in just a little bit. But before we do, a couple other headlines to chat through here this morning. Uh, as we look at continued updates from Proposition 12, Secretary Vilsack spoke at a conference full of state secretaries the other day to say that it's going to be a bumpy road ahead. Now, specifically what he was referencing here with prop 12 is we know that the supreme court held up the constitutionality of california's prop 12 welfare last may he said where we're going to need to buckle up our seatbelts and it's going to get bumpy is how and who regulates interstate trade that has been be- that has become a top question mark for the state of california as well as the federal government about who rules the interstate trade and deciding, you know, watching to see what is moved in and out of the state of California, as we know that they have to meet Prop 12 regulations to be sold in the state of California, but it sounds like also to be in the state of California physically, Tanner. So he said there's a lot of question marks still ahead here to figure out what the way is to get California uh, the pork that they need. But at present, this has caused pork in the state to skyrocket to about 591, pre, uh, 591 premium per 100 pounds of hog carcass weight there. So it's going to be a continued problem. Massachusetts is also looking at following a pretty similar set of standards. And so they might be dealing with some interstate travel as well. Uh, but that's the latest coming to us from USDA Secretary Vilsack.
0: Yeah, I saw the headline as well, and it just seems quite interesting where the reach is going to be able to extend to and where it stops. Machinery P provided us an update on part of the machinery market that he's seen so far in 2024. Tractors in that 130 to 150 horsepower range, Delaney, are up over 4% year over year. A couple of auctions in January noted a uh, maximum 140 sold it was or I'm sorry a maximum 150 2021 model sold with only 140 hours on it of course that set a record for that model of tractor when the hammer dropped at $133,000 plus buyer's premium when he looked at that category overall it came to a 4.2% hike over the year before Looking at the John Deere side of things, a 6155R had some of the same results. Of course, same vintage as that maximum 150, but Machinery Pete dives deeper, looks at a 2002 model 7610 and a John Deere 4455. So Delaney, several vintages of this range of horsepower tractor at every level is hot in that market averaging 4.6 percent higher so record high prices could potentially still be viewed as a deal to those buying these tractors as there is a demand for brand new coming off the line and those are held at a price premium as well continuing to keep an eye on the rest of the market we will get repeat to share with our audience quite an interesting Set of statistics there for mid-sized. I'm going to call them loader tractors, Delaney.
2: All right. Yeah, I was talking with uh, Ben Peterson the other day. He's a big planter guy, and he was saying planter sales have not really followed that same vein. Tanner, uh, I've actually seen planter sales go down over the last, you know, six months to a year. So interesting to see there where the dynamic is shifting for the equipment space.
0: Yeah, it is. It will be interesting to see, too, as we continue to see those forecasted slumps in farm income, what that does to the market.
2: Absolutely. But one thing that uh, some are touting as might be a way to increase farm income over the long haul has been these pipelines. We got some fresh news here from Summit Carbon Solutions and other pipeline companies as they scored a victory Wednesday in the state of North Dakota. The North Dakota Public Service Commission has decided that state rules preempt local ordinances when it comes to pipeline zoning issues, meaning that the Summit Carbon Solutions and other pipeline companies in the future simply have to abide by North Dakota Public Commission and state regulation. This decision paves the way for a rehearsing on Summit's application for a pipeline permit, which the commission denied last year. The Commission Chairman Randy Christman said hearings on Summit's revised application would be at least four weeks away or maybe longer. But local ordinances, which were changed in 2019, said that the approval of a route permit for a liquid or gas transmission facility automatically supersedes and preempts local land use or zoning regulations except for road use agreements. So the three-member commission met last week and discussed the issue and decided to keep it as a state rule that preempts local governance. So I'm sure we'll see some farmers upset by that, Tanner, and local community folks. Uh, But that is the latest when it comes to the pipeline story.
0: Yeah, again, that'll be interesting to see how and where jurisdiction ends and continues to reach Illinois Pork Expo was last week. A lot of economists have gathered together to discuss what 2024 looks like. It's expected to maybe be better than 2023, but that doesn't necessarily mean producers will be in the black. The good news is input costs are lower, and they may still go lower still as we've been talking our commodity markets in the area. And herd health has sharply improved thanks to a lot of the advancements of early detection technology as far as that goes. But is it going to be enough to restore profitability? economists are stating that it will still be lower costs and uh, lower prices to sell against in 2024. Even though lower costs do exist, it still might not put them in the black. We need to strike higher demand or lower supplies to be able to push those prices back up. Meyer sat down and talked about how 1998 was Delaney when comparing it to 2023. Of course, reflecting on those years, it's not good, Delaney, when you go back to a horrible hog year. reflect on what that feeling was for pork producers during the most recent calendar year unfortunately adjusted for inflation 2023 could have been worse the prices got down into the single digits late november and december for 1998 that did make restructuring farm businesses difficult but are we going to see restructuring coming down the pipeline in 2024 If prices don't go back up, Delaney, there could be a need for some of the larger integrators to restructure a bit. So we'll continue to keep an eye on that. Obviously learned a lot from the 1998 hog crisis in the pork industry. So we'll see if we can build our way out of that in 2024 and not make it another 1998.
2: Yeah, definitely, Tanner. And speaking of prices, the last kind of piece of headlines I have here are just headlines from the WASD report. Do you have any other stories to share with our listeners this morning? Uh,
0: I just have updates coming out of Ukraine and Russia. Uh, Tucker Carlson's interview has been shared. Uh, Putin is stating that there is a potential that this war could be over rather shortly. Uh, Putin called on the United States to step in and help with the negotiations between parties. He also stated that uh, there's dismay for President Zelensky and stated that Russia will not be beat. So negotiation is in the best interest for Ukraine as they look forward into the future of what this war is going to look like. So a lot more details, but uh, Tucker Carlson's has already got part of his interviews out. If you want to check those
2: out. Yeah, I saw that as well, Tanner. So that's it just gives me the interview, the movie vibes when in the movie, they go to interview North and North Korea's president at the time. So it's just wild to me. It seems like it's setting up very similarly to that movie. Yeah. Well, Tanner, as we take a look here at the WASDE report that was released at 11 a.m. Central Time yesterday, not too many big surprises, but just ahead of the USDA's report, CONAB released their estimates for both corn and soybean production. They looked at uh, 113.7 million metric tons and 149 million metric tons, respectively, and they continue to cut more production from their reports there. Did we see that reflected in the WASDI report? Well, to some extent, we did. As we take a look at some of the factors here from yesterday's WASDI report, overall, the monthly WASDI report showed U.S. corn outlook would be lower for food, seed, and industrial use and larger ending stocks. Soybeans showed lower soybean exports and higher ending stocks with more production in the pipeline ahead. As we take a look at South America here specifically, we did see the USDA adjust a few pieces of production here. Not anything too drastic, but on the corn side of things, Argentina, they kept production in line with last month's estimates at 55 million metric tons. Brazil's corn production estimates came down just slightly from December's estimates, now stating a 124 million metric tons, which is still quite a bit higher than where we see CONAB's expectations. Soybeans Argentina kept the same compared to January at 50 million metric tons. Brazil production once again was dropped ever so slightly to 156 156 million metric tons, still well above CONAB's estimates at a 149.4. And as we look at ending stocks. That is uh, not such a rosy picture there as we did see corn ending stocks come in at 2.172 billion bushels. That was uh, above the trade's expectations and above uh, the past month's report. Soybeans came in line very much the same way with ending stocks pegged at 315 million bushels Versus the trade's expectation of 284 million bushels, so well above trade expectations for soybeans. And how did that impact the markets, Tanner? Well, as we take a look here at the overnights, they're still trading lower. As March corn is down two and a half cents at 4:30 and three quarters, March soybeans down seven and three quarters cents at 11:85 and three quarters. March Chicago wheat up five cents on the board this morning at 5.93 and a half. Hard red March winter wheat down two and a half cents at 598.5, and and March spring wheat up three quarters of a cent at 684.5. Taking a look at livestock and where they'll open on the board today, April Live Cattle will open at a buck 86.57.5, March feeder cattle at 246.85. And April Lean Hogs this morning will open at 80.35. Tinner, we're kicking things over to our final conversation of the week talking about shipping logistics and more with Sandro Steinbeck, professor at North Dakota State University. Well, Tanner, I know we've been covering a lot of logistics and shipping issues here on the podcast, and we're going to be digging into that more today, chatting about the ripple effect it's had across many industries with Sandro Steinbeck, a professor at North Dakota State University. Sandro, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here today.
2: So before we dig into a recent article you put together looking at these ripple effects of shipping lane disruptions on U.S. agriculture, let's dive a little bit more into your background. You're currently a professor at North Dakota State University, but it sounds like you do a whole lot more than just being a professor.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um um, I'm also the director of the Center for Act Policy and Trade Studies at North Dakota State University, where we conduct a lot of research into act policy, but also focusing a lot on tra- trade and transportation issues on a, on a global and regional scale.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that we get to talk with you because a lot of headlines and a lot of listener comments around what has been happening to logistics world the last 12 to 18 months. So let's just Jump right in and let's begin to talk about the drought around the Panama Canal and what effects that is having. Can you give us an update on the way that sits?
1: Sure. Pretty scary development, actually, for U.S. agriculture. As we all know, U.S. agriculture exports depend heavily on this transportation um, space through the Panama Canal, but also to uh, the Suez Canal, because they're basically allowing us to to ship our, our products to market. Uh, what we have seen over the last uh, couple of months in uh, on the Panama Canal is a significant climate-induced challenge that is causing the daily um, number of ships or vessels that can go through the Panama Canal to plummet by more than thirty percent. That's fairly significant, right? With very, very large delays actually, and to about two hundred ships for a certain times being actually stuck in front of the canal, and uh, that has significant implication, right? That means that freight rates are going to be higher. There are delays in shipping, that's particularly an issue for agriculture commodities.
2: Yeah, and you know, as we look at that issue and the impact it has on agricultural commodities, we know from the USDA and others that exports this year are going to be lower due to a lot of different factors, but is the shipping factor one of the reasons we're going to see ag exports lower this year?
1: That's often one of the factors that we underlook when we talk about agriculture in the United States. Right, there's a lot of focus in terms of research and and discussion about production, right, and and weather and use shocks, et cetera. Something that is uh, often underlooked in that entire discussion is, is the entire transportation challenge. It is going to be a, a growing issue. I mean, we have seen in 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 fall two thousand twenty two and fall two thousand twenty three, right, the issues on the Mississippi River. And how that affected barge rates and also the ability just to ship agricultural uh, products down south of the River. And now we have that uh, really toxic mix, actually, where we have climate-induced uh, challenges in the Panama Canal that are going to last for quite some time, actually, as an outlook, um, combined with geopolitical challenges, particular in the in the in the Red Sea, and due to the attacks of the Iran-supported Houthi, Houthi regime on shipping lanes.
0: Yeah, so you just touched on the Red Sea. What what have been the most recent progressions there? We've reported on many headlines, but where's the status sit now?
1: So the most recent data tell us that um the freight rate capacity at the at the at the in the Red Sea had been plummeting significantly. Our data show that we used for our analysis here um that uh, the freight volume in the Red Sea, had been plummeting from about six hundred thousand tu in, in 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 on on the, on the normal average, right, going back to to fall, um, to about two hundred thousand TU per day, uh, today. That's about a sixty six percent drop, in the in the freight capacity in the Red Red Sea. At the same time, right, when we look into 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 cost of actually transportation. Uh, particular containers, as an example, we see that the dry vault container index has been almost increasing by 75% since December 2020. So so that means we we have here two issues that are coming together. Well, on one hand, we we have an issue of why transportation is going to take significantly longer, because ships are rerouted around the, um, the cap of good hope, which basically means that right now about um, 80% of all the ships that are that are that are that are um, that are on the on route between um, between America and Europe to Asia, actually passing via the cap of good hope instead of going through the Panama Canal or the Suez Canal. Usually this is only about 12%. So it's a very significant shift in global trade flows. And that means that transportation time actually increased significantly. I mean, it's about 10 to 14 days to get around the cap of Good Hope instead of going through the Suez Canal. Well, at the same time, freight rates are, are really starting to increase significantly. And that's a particular issue for 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 agriculture um, because we, we basically have only two ways to get to Asian markets, right? Either we go the long route via the Suez Canal which is bringing us to, to those markets or otherwise the Panama Canal. So basically, U.S. agriculture is squeezed in terms of transportation on both ends.
2: When we look at the impact that's having on the economic side of the balance sheet, you know, I think the question is who's paying for it or wh- where does this increased time come from and what resource or what... Uh, where are we seeing that dollar amount factor out for producers and for the overall economy?
1: Sure, that's usually a very difficult question. Right, who is paying the bill at the end of the day? Is it the farmer in America? Is it the export company? Or is it the importer in the foreign country? And these these effects usually compound. I mean, when we look into research and different events that we have seen over the last um, five to ten years, actually, such as the Ukraine Russia war, well, we see actually that these shocks are actually having implications for. For farmers as well. So in that sense, um, there had been significant price drops, for instance, and in, 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 due to the Ukraine-Russia war and the the the, um, the limited capacity actually to export commodity. So in that sense, why there's there's some there's some um, downside risk actually for agriculture exporters as well and and farmers in that sense, because if there's a lot of commodity available and you can't get it to the market. Um, that's a natural behavior, right, that, that markets will adjust actually and prices are going uh, to, to go lower in some sense. But on the other hand, right, it's it's also um, the importers on the other side that, that have to wait for longer times actually to get their products, products basically, that can also raise concerns about food security in, in certain markets where we are exporting heavily.
0: So as we do look towards the future, what are the solutions to the problem is it just by lack of mother nature we get rain around the panama canal is it the end of the war between russia and ukraine what types of things need to fall into place
1: sure um when we talk about why the 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 drought that is currently um plaguing um the panama canal region actually as this is going to go on for quite some time i mean the current ex- Current projections actually say that the El Nino conditions are really, will be continuing um, for long in 2024, with about um, um, water levels being about 7% lower. That means that the capacity of the Panama Canal will be about 30% lower during that time. Well, the question is, right, how do all these different factors that are playing together actually impact, for instance, corn and soybean exports out of, out of the United States? And that way is an important question, right? It's 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 about how we adjust logistics logistical plans, taking data into into better consideration and explore, for instance, alternative shipping routes that haven't been used for a long time, and, and and think about more, you know, adjusting schedules actually of shipment and storage as well to be able to react to um these significant um disruptions to actually maritime trade, and in that sense, right? It's 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 important also to think about more in the, in, in, in the long run? How do we get our products to markets? I mean, U.S. agriculture is heavily dependent and heavily benefiting from participation in the national markets, and, and these increasing transportation costs, the, the prolonged transit times that exist, and the potential market losses that come with those are really big concerns that we need to think about how to address, and that it's not just an issue on, on, on the global market side, but it's also an issue in, in our own transportation infrastructure. Is, is it really resilient to what we are going to expect in in 10, 15 years in terms of weather, climate shocks, and supply chain challenges? So, in terms of moving forward, right? Um, it's 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 very difficult to make really justified um recommendations on what to do. I mean, the general statements that are relevant here, like it's important to diversify actually our trade flows. I mean, as you know, our trade is is very concentrated in certain markets. That means also that it's really vulnerable, not just to transportation challenges, but also to um, trade shocks more generally or trade policy shocks. So in that sense, uh, exploring alternative markets for U.S. agriculture, actually getting access to those, is is an important measure actually to reduce risk because you basically diversify um, the the potential. Uh, risks that you are facing. And that means also that it's important for U.S. towards the United States to to finally start investing into its logistics infrastructure again and and making sure that our port infrastructure, but also our our hinterland infrastructure is actually able to deal with what we are going to be seeing over the next 10 to 20, 20 to 30 years, actually. And, And that picks more broadly also into concerns about the geopolitical landscape, which had been becoming uh, so much more vulnerable over the last five to ten years and had been you know for for a long time. So the question is what right, how we um, how we build the capacity actually to anticipate, to adapt and innovate into this in this very very dynamic trade environment that has a lot of opportunities, but it also presents significant challenges for youth agriculture.
2: So, Sandro, as we think about, you know, the farmers and ranchers that listen to our podcast, a lot of these things, as you mentioned, are going to be tough to, to fix. It's a, it's a long issue ahead of us, a long road ahead of us. What are things that producers can do at the farm gate level that will have an impact on this? Or what do they need to be thinking about doing differently this year than they have in years past?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting question, but also a question that is uh, difficult to answer, right? I mean, Uh, As a farmer and venture, I alone, I have very, very little influence, actually, on on all these external factors, right? It's hard for me to obviously impact the climate. It's it's difficult for me to impact policy. But to a certain degree, right, I'm thinking about, uh, as a farmer, right, how how do I work together with my my commodity (laughs) boards? How do I collaborate and influence, actually, policy to make the supply chain more resilient? These are questions that I think farmers, Don't think primarily about, but that should be really in in the back of their mind, right? How do we create a trade environment actually more diverse and that is more risk resilience to a certain degree? Um, Particularly here up north in North Dakota, right? We 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 have to ask ourselves the question, right? Where are our soybeans going? Are we exporting them to foreign markets? And if so, right? Are these markets really resilient? Do we expand on on by by crushing all these soybeans now but what we do then with the meals. so there's there's a lot of questions that play together right in terms of um short one response versus long one response to 2t challenges that, that we are facing in u.s agriculture
0: well i appreciate your insight and i know our listeners do too so if they want to keep up on your research or follow along with the progressions that are going through your articles how best do they keep up with you
1: Yeah, if they want to learn more about the works that we do, why they can come to our webpage at the Center of Agriculture Policy and Trade Studies, CAPS, at ndsu.org, and learn more about the works that we do.
0: Awesome. Thank you again for your time today.
1: Thank you. appreciate the opportunity.
0: Well, we've talked a lot about that topic here on the podcast, so hopefully our listeners found value in that conversation. I know it was good to get everything tied together, Delaney.
2: It certainly was. I think we're going to have more continued discussions on this topic, Tanner, because it is certainly one that's going to continue to impact farm profitability here in 2024.
0: Absolutely. But thanks for hanging out with us all week, listeners. We appreciate you. We'll be back again Monday. So, what do you say, Delaney? Should we let him go?
2: Let's let him go.